2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, through 8 and 9, which we went over last week, Paul has addressed this issue of an offering he was going to take for the saints in Jerusalem. And when we get to chapter 10, there's a notable change of tone in the epistle, so much so that some people begin to argue maybe this was added on later or this was something else. Um, Paul is still speaking. It's still the same letter. And the theme that really runs through the whole book is Paul's future coming to Corinth. So he had written first Corinthians to them. He didn't know how they accepted it. He was worried about it. He told them he was intending to come. Then in second Corinthians, he's heard from Titus, but he begins the book by explaining why he didn't come, why he was delayed, why he didn't do the things exactly he said he thought he might do at the end of first Corinthians. Then he began to address this issue of the offering that he wants to be ready when he arrives because he doesn't want to take an offering when he's there. He has one guilty obligation in their giving. And now what he's going to talk to is this smaller group, this element in the church that was false teachers or literally against him personally. And he's speaking to them in relation to his arrival at the church. So his future coming runs through kind of the whole book here and gives context to all the things he's saying. But the tone changes because he's addressing really a different element in the church. And he's addressing them in a way that is essentially related to his authority as apostle and his care over the church and how he's going to have to address that element when he arrives. So verse one, he says, now I, Paul, myself, and pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you. When he was there, he was lowly, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beg you that when I am present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intend to be bold. Notice, against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. So Paul is now pleading beginning to plead with that minority element in the church that he says some in verse two that he's going to address now for these last couple chapters mostly. And Paul's intention, he right off the bat begins by saying, hey, now I, Paul, myself, I'm pleading with you. He wants to plead with this group before he comes in with apostolic authority and just deals with them. He's, he's pleading for repentance and for an acknowledgement of some of their wrongs. We don't know exactly everything they were doing based on some of their criticisms. We'll learn some of what they were saying. But we know even from 1 Corinthians, there was divisive elements in the church. There was philosophic, worldly ideas coming in. There was just a straight carnal element in the church. There was idolatrous worship. There was uh, wrong practice in terms of sexuality and communion. There were people teaching the resurrection wasn't real. So there was a lot of different uh, false teachings kind of going on. We don't know what the center of that looked like, what the group was that was kind of running all those things, or if there was multiple ones. But most of the church has basically been acknowledged to have received Paul's correction and respond accordingly. But there's this remaining element. And I think it's notable to see how Paul pleads with them. And he says specifically in verse one, notice, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And Paul's intention in pleading with them was misunderstood and even disdained by this sum, the smaller minority element, because of the way he came off. He says, as meek or lowly. It was Paul's particular focus of the imitation of Christ's ministry why he did that. He didn't just show up and throw his influence and authority around. He pleaded with people because he said, that's what Jesus did. We're told in Isaiah 42, 2 and 3, it would, this would be said of Jesus. He will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. 
And of course, we know Jesus said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And the problem is, notice Paul says at the end of one, who in presence am lowly among you, but being absent, I am bold toward you. They, they had this criticism that we'll see here just in a few verses. When he writes letters, he's really bold and sounds strong. But when he shows up, he's weak. And they look down on his presence in person. And Paul's essentially acknowledging that's on purpose. You guys misunderstand what's happening here. I'm pleading with you based on the gentleness and meekness of Christ. The one who perfectly could have condemned anybody he wanted but came in meek and gentle, even in his reproofs of others. And they just couldn't understand authority, power, and influence not being actively wielded against other people. In other words, they couldn't understand meekness or gentleness, power under control. And sometimes I think it's... it's not something particularly, I'll even say on a manly level, that gets lifted up, particularly in our culture, as something to be ascribed to. And even when we think of things like lowliness or gentleness and meekness, we think of them in terms of almost a natural disposition. Like if somebody's got it, they got it. That's, that guy's just a nice, gentle, kind, kind of meek person. But if you're not like that, then, then there's no way these things can really be evident in you. One thing we know about Paul is in his natural form, he was nothing like this. This was a guy who marched around and hailed people off to jail, split up families, and killed. He, he was not meek and gentle in and of himself. I also think in the scriptures... The man that we know was the meekest man on the face of the earth was Moses. Moses was also a man who murdered somebody in cold blood with his bare hands. So if you want to talk about natural dispositions, Moses was not a meek individual by natural disposition. And in fact, when he did sin again, what came out? The temper. The man that could murder somebody with his bare hands. Yet that man became the meekest man on the face of the earth. It was not that Moses lost the fire that was inside of him or that Paul lost the fire that was inside of him that could have murdered other human beings. It was that that fire was tempered. It became meek. Power and authority were under control. And Paul says, I learned this in Christ. This is who he was. And I don't want to, I'm pleading with you to acknowledge why I'm doing this, who I am. When, when I'm there, I'm not just bold toward you in the way they're thinking. He says, but verse two, but I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with the confidence by which I intend to be bold against some. I don't. If I have to be bold, I will, but I don't want to show up like that. This, I want to plead with you now in meekness and loneliness like Christ did. If I have to be bold, I will, just as Jesus was, and just as Moses was, and just as Paul was in numerous situations. He says, against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh, they thought and accuse Paul not only of not being bold, which is crazy in and of itself. If you're a dude who's willing to go share the gospel, though you know you could be killed at any moment, you're pretty bold. But also, they accused him of walking according to the flesh. That means essentially serving in worldly strength and natural tempers without the Spirit of God. They're basically saying Paul's ministry wasn't even in the Spirit. This guy just ministers according to the flesh, which, you know, in some ways we should all take heart because there was probably not a more dynamic spiritual ministry than what Paul the Apostle had, and people still slandered that. 
So, you know, anybody who's serving God, even in a way that God is obviously using them, is going to be slandered. It happened to the Apostle Paul. But it is crazy to think that this guy, even to these people who are slandering them, him is pleading with them meekly and in gentleness to repent, to change, so that when he shows up, he doesn't have to be bold against them. He says in verse 3, he's going to admit now part of what they said, for though we walk in the flesh, the idea is I admit I live in a fleshly body, I live in a human frame. He says we do not war according to the flesh. Paul admits he lives fleshly, but his ministry wasn't based on physical skills, physical goods, or ungodly or just human philosophies. He said, yeah, I walk around in the flesh and I present myself and I'm in a human body, but I don't war according to those things. And he uses the word war on purpose because he knows there's a battle and our battle is on another level than just the physical. It's in the supernatural. And We can forget that very often, as these individuals did. We need to remember that we're in a war. Again, A.W. Tozer wrote a book called This World, Playground or Battleground. And the title gives the whole point away. How are we living in this world? Like, this is our playground? Or as if this is a battleground? Do we realize that we have an enemy in this world? an intelligent being that's constantly strategizing against us. That Satan has a plan for our lives. And he is constantly active in working out that plan, whose goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And right now, in each and every one of our lives, he is working something toward that end, to steal, kill, and destroy from you. And... Maybe we should sit back and think a little bit and say, all right, Lord, how is he doing that right now in my life? Because he ain't leaving you alone if you're his. And certainly if you're the Lord's, he's got a plan for you too. He wants to ruin and steal any good thing that God has for us. Paul knows he's in a war and he knows he can't fight that war on a physical level. It's fought on a spiritual level. Again, as most of us know, there, there are certain places where the battle can be physical in the world. Is literally, I hold to the truth of Christ or I die. But for most of us, it's on a supernatural level. And as we're going to see here, on a thought level. We're not getting drug into movies we don't want to see by demons physically. Like, I tried to fight my way out, but I couldn't do it. And they held my eyes open for the worst scenes. You understand? This isn't happening to us. It's not, it's not this carnal level that we're fighting things on. Paul says, you think I walk according to the flesh? I live in the flesh, but I don't war that way. I understand this battle is fought a different way. He says, verse 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, fleshly. We're not using swords. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And if we wonder what those strongholds are, he tells us in verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing, the idea can be pretensions, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your disobedience is fulfilled. So here's what Paul says here. He makes it very clear where the battleground of this war is. It's in the mind, and it's according to the truth of God. When he he showed up at a city where nobody knew Jesus Christ, he wasn't battling human beings. He was battling the thoughts and ideas in their heads and in their hearts that blinded them from the knowledge of God. And he understood... That in that battle, the weapons that we had couldn't be fleshly. He says they're not carnal. I can't fight a war of truth against lies with a gun or a grenade. It has to be fought with something else. 
these weapons, he says, are mighty in God. Mighty, we're not mighty. The weapons are mighty. And it's not our power, but it's God's power. People argue about the language a little bit there. Mighty, the idea might be by God or for God or to God. Really, the idea is all of them. (laughs) These things are mighty because of him and his power. Paul knew the power of these strongholds. Strongholds being ideas that are against the knowledge of God that are set up in our hearts and minds. Because Paul was bound by those ideas at one point in his own life. And he knew the stronghold that they were in him. He would say in Acts 26, 9, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. There's a lot of people out in the world that think they must do things contrary to the name and character and words of Jesus of Nazareth. They think they must. They have strongholds in their hearts and in their lives. And the great war happening in our world is the conflict of all worldly thought and feeling and ideology that keeps people from the knowledge of God, from who he actually is. It's not just sex, drugs, and rock and roll that's keeping people away from God. Oh, I guess in our day, sex, drugs, and Taylor Swift. The idea would have to be that any idea about life, any thought about life, again, and before, pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, high things that exalt themselves, all of those things, any thought or idea about life contrary to the truth as revealed by God are enemy strongholds. They are high places that need to be cast down like an idol needed to be cast down in Old Testament times. Although the weapons that we use aren't physical. Like in the Old Testament, you could walk up and you know, burn the altar of Baal or something. We can't do that because what's in a person's mind and heart, we're not attacking with a physical thing. We're using the truth of God. But evolution is a stronghold. A woman's right to abortion is a stronghold. Unbiblical sexual morals, heterosexual or homosexual, are strongholds. The idea that God doesn't care about your sin or won't help you in your sin are strongholds. The feminism is liberty is a stronghold. That the Bible is outdated and doesn't relate to our modern life is a stronghold. People don't just sin only because they like sin. Thoughts free them to sin. And these strongholds get set up, and then people move into these sinful life patterns and become slaves to sin. But the thoughts begin the process. And Paul knows that's the battle that you and I are facing. When you read through the various lists of spiritual armor mentioned in Scripture, the armor isn't actually meant to protect our bodies because we're not fighting physical battles. It speaks about truth and salvation, and faith, spiritual principles, things that teach us about who God is. They protect the truth of God in the heart and in the mind. That's what they protect. And the weapons that we have, the mighty weapons that are empowered by God are very simple. They're the word of God and prayer. That's what they are. Those are the only two weapons to fight this type of battle. And why the Bible and the Word of God are always in the middle of the battle. And why people always slander the Word of God. That the Bible is outdated or full of mistakes or patriarchal or bigoted or untrustworthy or needs new context. Or a lot of people just don't even, they criticize the Bible and they've never even read it before in their life. I remember one time there was a gentleman who came down front after the service and you know, just basically was like, how can you guys believe all that? I mean, the Bible is just filled with mistakes. And, you know, you could go a lot of different ways with that type of conversation. But I just said, man, 
the people that are smarter than you and me have been arguing about this for hundreds of years. Do you really think it's that easy? And he was like, ah, nah, I guess not. Right? <laughs> he wasn't even really fighting that battle. People, people have all these general thoughts and, and a lot of them aren't even strong or well thought out. They're just strongholds of the enemy that lead them into sin more freely. And the enemy knows that the word of God and the power of the word of God to cast down those strongholds is dangerous. That a stronghold that he's been building for 40 years in somebody's life can be thrown down by one verse from the Bible given in the spirit of God. And so he wants people to mistrust this thing and stay away from this thing as much as possible. I don't know if you're here, you're listening in and you're a skeptic. The Bible claims to be alive with the power of God in and of itself. We don't have to prove anything to you. Read the Bible on your own. And God will minister his truth to you. But for those of us who are believers and for Paul, who is in ministry against some of these other individuals who had other practices, he's saying, you can talk to me about what I am in the flesh, but I know the battle's not in the flesh. I live in a body, but I don't war that way. And I know that the strongholds I'm fighting against are not people's bodies. They're strongholds in people's minds, their thoughts, their arguments, their high things that work against God. But in the end, is the Bible the infallible thoughts of God? If it is, then it is higher than the fallible thoughts of men. The Bible is what it says it is, then it doesn't need any help from anybody. Or it's not, and then we all got nothing. But it is what it says it is, the Word of God. And it is the power of God, and it is mighty to cast down strongholds. Charles Hodge, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians, says this, A rationalistic Christian or a philosophizing theologian, lays aside the divine for the human, God's wisdom for human wisdom, the infinite and infallible for finite and fallible. The success of the gospel depends on its being presented not as our word, but as God's word, not as something to be proved, but as something to be believed. It was on this principle that Paul acted, and hence he was not at all intimidated by the number, the authority, the ability, or the learning of his opponents. He was confident that he could cast down all the proud pretensions because he relied not on himself, but on God, whose messenger he was. That should be encouraging for us. And it should be something we remember. Our battle is not won by how well we know Christian apologetics or philosophy or facts about creation versus evolution. The battle is won when the truth of God is presented as it is, the truth of God. And it goes up against false thoughts and arguments that are in the world, directly against them, in conflict. And it wins. Because it's mighty in God. It's not mighty in us. It's mighty because it's God's word and God's truth. And because there's secret allies in everyone else's heart that's fighting against God's word and God's truth. So when I just put God's word and God's truth out there, the Holy Spirit is like, yeah, that's true. And when anybody throws anything else out there, the Holy Spirit doesn't back it up because it's not. It's not from him. Something different happens when God's truth is put in front of people. Now, Satan knows he has to engender these thoughts in people to keep a stronghold in their life because he knows that thoughts themselves affect our behavior. What we think about leads to how we live and what we do. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, The wicked in his proud countenance does not see God. God is in none of his thoughts. One of the things that defines wickedness is God is in none of those thoughts. The Proverbs will say, for as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Proverbs 23, 7. 
Micah 2.1 says, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning light they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. How many people are laying around in their bed at night thinking of evil things? And in the morning they practice it because they can. We protect our bodies and often try to protect the bodies and provide for the bodies of our children or loved ones. But what do we do to protect their minds? Because the enemy knows all I need to do is get that person's thoughts and then I'll have their life. If I have their thoughts, if I have a stronghold in their heart, then I can win the battle. That's why we see so much of the influence out there in social media, winning people who maybe are protected, parents try to protect them from the physical, but they surrender them over to the influence of the world constantly online, and then they wonder, what is happening with my kid? Well, there's strongholds in their heart and their mind. And the same thing happens with adults, but I think we take it for granted what power thoughts have. All the enemy knows he needs to do is get your thoughts in a particular area. Get his arguments set up in your life. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Price of Neglect, says this, What we think about when we are free to think about what we will, that is what we are or will soon become. The idea is being when you have free time to think, when your mind is just going, when it rolls on its own, when you don't have to focus on something specifically, where does your mind go? He says our voluntary thoughts not only reveal what we are, but they predict what we will become. Except for that conduct which springs from our basic natural instincts, all conscious behavior is preceded by and arises out of our thoughts. The will can become a servant of the thoughts, and to a large degree, even our emotions follow our thinking. The more I think about it, the madder I get, is the way the average man states it. And in so doing, not only reports accurately on his own mental processes, but pays as well an unconscious tribute to the power of thought. Thinking stirs feelings, and feeling triggers action. That is the way we are made, and we may as well accept it. Thinking about God and holy things creates a moral climate favorable to the growth of faith and love and humility and reverence. We cannot by thinking regenerate our hearts or take our sins away or change the leopard spots. Neither can we by thinking add one cubit to our stature or make evil good or darkness light. So to teach is to misrepresent a scriptural truth and use it to our own undoing. But we can, by spirit-inspired thinking, help to make our minds pure sanctuaries in which God will be pleased to dwell. I referred in the previous paragraph to our voluntary thoughts, and I used the word advisedly. In our journey through this evil and hostile world, many thoughts will be forced upon us which we do not like and for which we have no moral sympathy. The necessity to make a living may compel us for days on end to entertain thoughts in no sense elevating. Ordinary awareness of our doings of our fellow men will bring thoughts repugnant to our Christian souls. These need affect us but little. For them we are not responsible, and they may pass through our minds like a bird through the air without leaving a trace. They have no lasting effect upon us because they are not our own. There are unwelcome intruders for which we have no love and which we get rid of as quickly as possible. Paul understood where the battle was, and he also understood that's why it was necessary for us, notice he says at the end of 5, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. Not only is that where the battles won originally, but is the battle we continue to face. You and I, for the rest of our lives, are going to battle in our thoughts, in the world that we live in. As Tozer said, we're going to have thoughts that we might not like, we're forced to entertain, but those aren't our own. We don't have to own them. But what about our voluntary thoughts? Where do our minds go when we allow them to go? When they have the freedom to move? We need to take them into captivity to Jesus Christ. 
bring them under something's power. The idea of captivity, you're brought under something else's power and brought somewhere. We are to bring our thoughts into captivity. doesn't mean that it's easy, but it does mean that it is possible. We are responsible for it. Christ calls us to recognize it and to do it. Sometimes, especially children and new believers, part of this just looks like good thoughts, the knowledge of God being sown and implanted. A lot of times, we just need to learn new things in Jesus Christ. We need thoughts of the love of God or heaven or hell or forgiveness or prayer or faith or mercy or the cross or the gospel given to us. We need to learn them. And that's totally fine. It is part of the way we bring our thoughts captive to him. But other times, especially as we grow in Christ, we just realize there's a battle over our thoughts. I know what godly thoughts are or should be, and I'm being brought to different arguments, different high things that exalt themselves against the truth of God and what he says in his word. Maybe I don't like what he says about marriage or what he says about friendship, or what he says about correction, or what he says about creation, what he says about hell or heaven. Or maybe I don't understand certain things about the way God works and things like election or predestination. Or There's plenty of places where people can begin to get tripped up in their thoughts. Do we bring them captive to Christ? We've got to be ready to fight this battle. Thomas Watson, in his book, A Divine Cordial, says, It's Satan that makes us have good thoughts of ourselves and hard thoughts of God. I think that's a good way to figure it out, whether your thoughts are from the Spirit or not. Do we have good thoughts of ourselves and hard thoughts of God? Are we more merciful and loving, wise and kind and powerful than he is? We've always got to be careful then. Satan wants us to have good thoughts of ourselves and hard thoughts of God. We're all going to face evil thoughts in this world. It's a battleground, not a playground. And there's a purpose for us to be here. And it's a fight worth fighting. And it has a lot of important consequences. What do we do? Do we oppose them? Do we hate them? Do we resist them and their influence? That's good. That's what God asks us to do. We should recognize thoughts, arguments, high things that are not his, that are not in accordance with the knowledge of God, and reject them. It's a battle we're supposed to fight. When thoughts come into your mind that aren't godly, do you wish they were gone and never returned? Then it's not yours. Don't own it. The enemy is going to try to attack us. I will just say a couple practical things real quick for taking our thoughts captive to Christ. What does that look like? I just encourage you to think, what does the word of God tell me about this? You begin to fear, you begin to get worried about the world, about violence, about your children or their future. What does the word of God tell me about this? Marshal up the scripture. Begin to put your mind there. Focus on the things that Christ says. Again, the word of God is the place we're supposed to go. Memorize scripture. Get the word of God in your heart and mind. The second thing I would say is pray. Those are the top two weapons, but pray. Pray for yourself and pray for others. Lustful thoughts begin to come to your mind. Start praying for other people that you know might be struggling. Pretty soon the enemy will stop because he's like, I'm just turning this person into an intercessor. We got to quit this. This isn't working. Right? Pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Put your mind on the Lord. Begin to pray. Join the fellowship of godly men and women. You are sitting here tonight thinking about your thoughts in a godly way. This is going to be helpful to you. If you are out there isolated, Satan knows you're an easy target. What's the easiest target? The sheep that's out there by itself alone and isolated. So unhealthy to be outside of other godly men and women. Be about God's business. Serve him. People are serving all over the building tonight, and you know what they're thinking about? Thinking about doing security or ushering with the right heart, thinking about worship with the right heart, thinking about teaching with the right heart. 
thinking about serving, being about God's business, put your mind somewhere healthy. The Proverbs 16.3 says, commit your works to the Lord and your thoughts will be established. You're going to work. You're saying, Lord, give me an open opportunity to share the gospel today. Help me to point my coworkers toward you. Right? Being about God's business will put your thoughts in the right place. We'll give you healthy thoughts. And I would encourage you to begin and end the day thinking about him. People say that all the time, but I'll also say, don't go far in the middle of the day. If you don't stray the rest of the day, it's easier to come back in the beginning and the end. Again, the Lord's Prayer begins with, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. It seems like an early morning thing, something that we should start with. And we often know we should try to put our mind on the Lord at the end of the day, pray at the end of the day. But the reality is if I struggle all the rest of the day, not really thinking about the Lord, well, it's probably because I shouldn't only start in the beginning and the end. I want to fill my day with him. And if I don't wander far from him the rest of the day, it's going to be a lot easier to come back to him. And everybody's mind wanders. If you're like, oh, my mind always wanders, join the club. Now, you're not different. Everybody, the godliest people talk about their thoughts, struggling to bring them to the Lord. But what they realize is, I might wander, but he never wanders from me. And the minute I recognize that, I can just come back to his presence, and I'm accepted again, and he wants me there. So I don't have to stress about it. The minute I recognize I'm wandering, I just come back to him. Lord, be involved in what I'm doing here. Whether I'm making a lunch, or I'm doing schoolwork, or I'm sitting in a class, or I'm waiting at a doctor's office, Lord, be involved in what I'm doing here. Just be there with him. It's important. Paul knows this is a center of the battle of life in Christ, being these thoughts, bringing these thoughts captive in obedience to Christ. And, Paul says, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is filled. Essentially coming back to saying, and since I know this is the battle, when I show up, I will be ready to punish and deal with all unrepentant thoughts and ideas about God. I'm not going to be lowly to do that. He knows that is right, and he states clearly that he will. He doesn't tell us exactly what that looks like. Church discipline, something supernatural, I don't know. I know Paul just knew that he walked in the Spirit, and some crazy stuff happened when Paul went places. Prayed, and some guy went blind, Elimaeus. You know, he handed people over to Satan. There are some spiritual things that happen. There's church discipline from 1 Corinthians 5. Whatever that looked like, Paul's essentially saying he's not afraid to do what he needs to do to be obedient to the Lord in dealing with unrepentant and ungodly thoughts and arguments. So, verse 7, he says, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. This minority element was only looking at things according to the outward appearance. It's like, is this all you see, just the outside? And that's very easy for all of us to do, particularly in this type of spiritual warfare. We get very caught up in secondary causes. I, I particularly like the example of, we know when Peter says to Jesus, not so, my Lord, and Jesus has to look at Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. Uh, I think it's instructive because Jesus could still separate the difference between Peter and Satan's influence in Peter. Do you notice that? The thoughts that Peter had that were not godly. And Jesus could rebuke that thought without firing Peter. He wasn't saying, Peter, leave right now because you're Satan. Don't ever come back. Jesus wasn't tricked by secondary causes. When he was tempted in the wilderness, he knew exactly what was happening. If we recognize the devious nature behind of what ha happens in life, you, you would be a little stronger to deal with it. You know, Satan is, is crazy. You know, he, he knows where, where we all are, and he, he will do what he can to bring us into scenarios where he knows we're weak. You know, if, if I don't struggle with something, Satan's not going to hit me there. He's going to hit me where I struggle. You know, you're an alcoholic. You're going to win a contest where somebody sends free beer to your house. 
And you should see in that not, oh man, this must be the hand of God. You should recognize, no, there's something devious behind this. You know, you're fighting with somebody and you're just trying not to slug them. And of course, you're going to run into that person at Walmart or something, right? That's, this is how these things kind of go. And we can, if we just see this as they're the primary cause, we don't see behind it. There's something else going on here. Then we get tricked. Do we just look at things as they are? Or do we realize there's a bigger battle happening in the middle of all of this? Sometimes you can, you can hear a person and you can just realize, no, that's Satan behind it. It's not even just this individual. There's something more happening here. And Paul could rebuke them. He's saying, you, you just look at things as they are. And particularly, he says, you think they're convincing themselves that they are Christ. The idea is they were claiming some type of special favor with God that excluded Paul. But he says, well, if you think you're Christ, we're Christ too. You don't, you don't have some special position. Paul wasn't claiming a special position, and he was an apostle. He was claiming equality. He said, we're all Christ. We should always beware of somebody that thinks they have some type of special favor with God over other people. That's nowhere in the scripture. You think you're Christ? Okay, me too. You don't have a special claim on Christ that other people don't have. You know, there's always some crazy person out there who's like, don't touch the Lord's anointed. What are you talking about? Okay, don't touch me either, because we're both the Lord's anointed. What do you want from me, right? Paul's, Paul's saying, what are you talking about? Yeah, I'm Christ too. They don't don't have some special position there. And he says, For even if I should boast somewhat more of our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification, and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed. He's he's speaking about his authority, but I, I think it's very interesting here how he talks about spiritual authority in light of this verse. Uh, he, he, number one, says that there is spiritual authority. It's a real thing. God had given him a particular type of authority to accomplish things on the face of the earth. Now, there's all types of discussions about spiritual authority and how that works out. But I'll just say there's also abuses of it. But just because there's abuses of it doesn't mean there's a reality. And God gives it. To individuals. And yes, they can abuse it. And people work all types of systems to try to protect from that. And, but the reality is, you can't. Paul could have abused his spiritual authority, but he didn't. Because he was humble and Christ-like. And there are plenty of people who God gives authority and they handle it well for a while. And then other times they abuse it. And nobody's perfect other than Jesus. But Paul recognizes that he has spiritual authority But he notices and says this in verse 8, which the Lord gave us. All true spiritual authority is only given by God. No true spiritual authority ever came from a congregation, a pope, a church denomination, a seminary, or a man's own work. They never got it from any of those things. It only comes from the Lord. Elijah didn't show up one day with spiritual authority because he passed some curriculum. He got that from God. Moses didn't get his spiritual authority because he found some special Bible verse one day out in the wilderness. Or the Apostle Paul didn't get his spiritual authority because he was so much holier than everybody else. God gave it. He realizes, I'm no better than anybody else. This is is something just given by God. And God gives gifts to all of us, and we recognize that. You have a gift in terms of worship. You have a gift in terms of wealth. If you have a gift in terms of intelligence or beauty, that's a gift from God. Now, you can abuse all those things. doesn't mean it's not there. But you can use them for your own glory or the Lord's. Paul recognized the only reason he has this is because it's from God. And he also recognizes what it's for. Look at what he says there, third. For the edification and not your destruction. Here's why anybody has spiritual authority on any level. And you have spiritual authority as a husband in your home. You men, you have spiritual authority 
as parents over children. You have spiritual authority in a ministry you might be in, whether you're a children's ministry teacher or wherever. Here's why you have that spiritual authority. For the edification and not the destruction of others. For the building up and not the tearing down of others. That's why God gives spiritual authority to anybody. Now, pruning and discipline are a necessary part of growth and health. That's why Paul's willing to say, I'll come in there and use it if I have to. But I'd rather plead with you in the loneliness and meekness of Christ to build you up. But if I have to build up the church by asking you to leave, then I will. He'll be bold in that manner. But that's the goal of spiritual authority. And he wasn't afraid of using that. And he certainly wasn't afraid of confronting people. I always think if Paul could confront Peter in Galatians 2, as he tells us, I don't think he had problems confronting false teachers. It's a lot harder to confront another godly guy that you know is doing the right thing in terms of serving the Lord, but making a mistake in the moment than it is to confront, at least in my perspective, a whole bunch of people who are false teachers trying to lead people astray. That's a lot. I feel a lot less guilty in that regard. So Paul, I think, could do that. I think he has no problem here dealing with these people. He says, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. It's not a thought. It's not a threat per se, as much as Paul is just saying, I'm going to be the same person no matter where I am, which is what any godly person should be able to say. When I'm writing to you, they say these things, man, sound really weighty. When Paul writes, he's a scary guy. But when he shows up, he's contemptible looks weak. And there's all types of kind of historical things about what Paul might have looked like. He was a short guy with an annoying voice or we don't know. He was not a weak guy. If you just read his travels and all the things he suffered, he was no weak guy. But we don't know physically necessarily what his presentation then other than the people who didn't like him found an avenue there to slander him. So if people make fun of the way you look, you're in good company with the Apostle Paul here. Somebody will always find a reason to slander us. But what Paul says there, again, is when he shows up, he's going to be the same type of person. Now, 12, he says, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So these false teachers apparently had set up, of course, their own standard of what godliness looked like, and they were all remarkably meeting that standard with excellence. And they were looking at one another, comparing themselves among themselves, saying, man, we're all doing a good job here. Way to go, you, you, and you. And, of course, the Apostle Paul did not meet their standard, so he was outside of the crew. And what Paul says is, we are not going to be among that crew that compare themselves among themselves or compare themselves measuring themselves with others on another human level. That's not the way I'm going to work. And it is very hard for us, again, just like it's hard for us not to look at the physical and see that as the primary cause, but really the secondary cause. It's also hard to not compare ourselves to others. We're going to read in John 21, the Apostle Peter looks at Jesus and says, what about that guy, John? And Jesus has to say, what is that to you? You follow me. We're always looking around. What are other people doing? What about that person's life? God, how come you're doing this? They seem like they got, and we don't know the story over there, but it's very easy to compare ourselves among ourselves. You think of the seven churches in the book of Revelation, And if they would have just looked at themselves, most of them would have thought we're doing pretty good. And some of them did. And if they would have compared themselves to the other churches, they probably said, you know, they do this thing well, but we got this thing better than them. But if you compare that to Jesus's view of them, everything kind of changes. And that's what we do. We look around at other people. We can feel good about ourselves or we can even kind of acknowledge we compare ourselves to others. Like, oh, well, they got this, but I got this. 
The only thing that matters is the Lord's view of us. Because that's what we are in truth anyway. And everything else is just a thought. And what Paul says is, that type of life, it is not wise. And can I just say again, we live in a world where we are comparing ourselves among ourselves more than any generation of any world has ever done. Constantly, online, comparing ourselves physically, comparing ourselves materially, comparing ourselves lifestyle-wise, whether people think it or not. That's why literally there is a mental health crisis in our world. Multiple state governments, multiple school districts are suing people like Meta and Instagram because of mental health crises that people are having. You want to know why? Because the Bible says we're not wise. Constantly comparing ourselves among ourselves and to others. It's not healthy. It's not who we were made to be or what we were made to do. And it's certainly not healthy in a church setting where we're just servants of the Lord's, not other people's. Paul says, I'm not going to be among that number. They're not wise. 13, we, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you. For it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is in another man's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall greatly enlarge by you in our sphere to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. Another interesting insight here into how Paul viewed ministry. And there's such balance here. There's Humility, but true humility doesn't deny what the grace of, of God has done in a person's life. But it also doesn't go beyond the boundaries of that. So what Paul says to the Corinthians is, I talked about having spiritual authority, but my spiritual authority doesn't extend to places that I have no call. He says, but it does extend to you because God used me to plant your church. That, that was a reality of what happens. He says, I'm not going to boast of something beyond the limits of the sphere God appointed us. What God had done through Paul, what God called Paul to. And originally, Paul wanted to go back to the Jews. That was his heart because it's who he was. But God said, no, I'm setting you apart and calling you to go to the Gentiles. I'm sending you somewhere else. And Paul said, hey, man, I stay in my lane. I, I don't find spiritual authority outside of this lane. I'm in the place that God told me to be. And I stay out of what God called other people to do. Paul would say in Romans 15, 20, And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation. But Paul says, The sphere at the end of 13 that God appointed us especially includes you. I'm writing to you, Corinthians, because... I have responsibility there. This is why God sent me. You're part of the lane God has me in. And for most of them, that was a positive thing. He would say in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Are you not my work in the Lord? Not that he's claiming, obviously, the glory for himself, but he's saying, God did this work through me, and so I still have responsibility toward you. It's, it's where the Lord called me and where the Lord has, for, has me. And he says, that's my field. We're not going to overextend ourselves as if our, our authority didn't extend you. Paul wasn't writing these letters to churches he had nothing to do with. He's writing it to the Corinthians. He's saying, this is where God brought us. And I think it's important. What, what is our sphere? We should know that. What's the God-appointed field for your life? Are you faithful in the limits that God has set for you? If you're not sure what that is, well, I would say read the Bible. Let him begin to tell you and to teach you. Certainly it begins in the home circle, then the church, then the world. But it always begins in the home circle. 
First Timothy 5.4 says, If any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show piety at home and repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. Got a parent that's a widow or alone? God says, okay, you want to show real godliness? Start at your house. Take care of your parent that needs your help. You don't need to go to another field. You got that right there. And there's plenty of verses just like that in the scripture. What is the appointed field for us? A lot, sometimes people just think of all these other places and people always have thoughts about other people's ministries. We, I know how they could run this better. And it's not that you can't say something's scriptural or not scriptural, but we, we have a lot of ideas about things that it doesn't really matter And the reality is, are we faithful in the field that the Lord has stuck us in? Paul said, you want to know why I'm writing this letter, why I have this authority? Because it extends to you. Because this is the limit, the sphere that God has set me in. And we should be aware of where the end of that sphere is. And Paul says, I don't go out of that lane. I don't get out of the field God set for me. I stay in the place that he gave to me. And we never want to find ourselves in somebody else's place. That's what these false teachers were doing. They had lots of ideas for the church that Paul started and was appointed as a field for the Apostle Paul. And when Jesus shows up, you and I do not want to find ourselves as fake bosses with no real authority in another man's field. Nobody wants to be found like that. I want to be found in the field that God put me in faithfully serving and working right there. And I can look around and start to compare myself to somebody else and say, man, I want that field, or I could make that feel way better. And what? Where does God have you? That's where you need to be found faithful. That was the work that Paul wanted to be involved in. Now, again, it wasn't that Paul didn't allow anybody else to help. He had Timothy there. He had Titus there. He had Apollos there. He would allow other men to work and be a part of God's work. But the point is, these false teachers had no real intention to edify the church or to glorify God. They, they were there for a wrong reason. Those other men were also called to be a part of it. That was part of the field that God called them to. Now, Paul sums it up. By saying this, 17 and 18, this is good. If anybody's going to argue about whose field is whose, well, here's how it all gets figured out. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Whose field is who? Well, we're all going to find out one day soon. When we stand before the one who laid out the limits and set the spheres and called us to the field that we're supposed to be in. And he says, anybody want to glory? These false teachers want to glory in Corinth and what they think they're doing there? He says, if anybody glories, they should glory in the Lord. What he's doing. Because it doesn't matter if you commend yourself right now. It only matters if God commends you one day. That's what matters. That's how we're going to tell whether we've done the right thing. God will be the ground of all praise and confidence. And in the end... Any ministry at all, any spiritual authority at all, any type of service at all, the point of it is pleasing God, and the ultimate reward is his commendation. That's the point of the whole thing. And we do need to be careful because ministry can become an identity for people, not just being a pastor, it could be anything. You know, you, you take certain joy in this, particularly if God begins to work in our Our identity becomes this thing that we do. And all of a sudden, it's more about us and who we are and our reputation and less about God's pleasure and commendation. And the way you could kind of think about it is, if God took it from you right now, would you be just as happy to lay it down as you were to pick it up? I think if God said to Paul, okay, you're done, Go back to Arabia. You're going to spend some time with me. Paul would have been just as happy. Not just because he wasn't getting beat up anymore, <laughs> but because he was doing what pleased God. 
and we can allow our service to really become an idol and something that God never meant it to be. Is it really about God's glory and God's pleasure? Paul says, how are we going to find out in the end? Wow, it's not about whether you commend yourself or whether other people commend you and think you're doing such a good job. The only thing that matters is when we stand before God one day. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you again for this man, Paul. We thank you for the instruction that you've given us through him. Pray certainly that you would allow us to take heed to these things, however they relate to us individually. Certainly, Lord, we pray that these would be healthy thoughts in our mind. Pray, Lord Jesus, that you allow us to set our mind on heavenly things, things that are good and just and praiseworthy and full of virtue in you. And Lord, I pray that you would continue not only to lead us to yourself, but to conform us into your image and likeness. You know what that looks like for each of us. So I just pray that you allow us to heed these things. And Lord, I pray for anybody who might find themselves in the minority of a false teacher or somebody who's in a wrong way involved in a ministry that's not their own, that you could open up their eyes to it. And like Paul, your gentle and meek pleading with them would be seen and realized, and they could know in themselves the truth and surrender. And Lord Jesus, we certainly thank you for your grace to help us in all these things. We have no ability to walk through them on our own. We thank you that you're our guide and good shepherd. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.